0: Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 73 of Life and Lessons. This week, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Dom McGregor. Dom was one of the two co-founders of Social Chain, a business that grew to almost 200 million pounds in revenue before floating on the stock exchange, all in the space of just five years. During that time, Dom also quit alcohol, and since then, he's done over four and a half years sober, and he's still... Only 28 years of age. In the next hour, you're going to learn how running out of toilet paper whilst in university led to Dom co founding a £200 million business, what advice Dom would give to young business owners who are just getting started on their own journeys, why being honest about your progress and avoiding the urge to fake it until you make it will actually serve as a competitive advantage in the long run what perspective you gain from almost five years sober in your 20s, and so much more. Like many business owners in this generation, I've sat on the sidelines and watched the growth story of social change from the very early days. And so to have had the chance to sit down with Dom and ask some of those questions that I've always wondered about their story was really interesting his conversation with chris williamson back in 2018 about sobriety is also one of the key reasons why i carried on what was only ever going to be a very short stint of sobriety myself through until today so over the years indirectly i've learned a lot from dom and i think that today in this conversation you're going to learn a lot as well but just before then If you're new here, do make sure that you're subscribed to Life and Lessons on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening right now. I say this a lot, but there really are so many more great conversations just like this one coming your way. And if you're subscribed, it means that you're not going to miss them. But in the meantime, here it is. Episode number 73 of Life and Lessons with Dom McGregor. So something I speak about a lot on this podcast is the idea of the revolving door theory and this idea that you never truly know the long-term consequences of your actions until long after the fact, and that sometimes something which seems insignificant can actually play a fundamental role in changing the direction of your life irreversibly. And I think that your story, or at least the beginning of your story, is a ridiculous example of that. So let's start here and bring people up to speed who don't know the early days of your story. How did you running out of toilet paper whilst in uni lead to you building a 200 million pound business?
1: Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me on today. So, yeah, uh, great, great question. So how did me running out of toilet paper end up in me creating a business which uh, we listed on public market? So um, like most people back when I was 19 at university, my life rolled around going out. So, you know, I'd have um, Monday nights, Tuesday nights, Wednesday nights, majority of the nights I'd be out having fun. Um, but at the kind of same time, you know, there was this kind of rise of, um, social media happening. So people were like on Facebook connecting up with friends from school. And then Twitter was kind of coming out and, um, you could tweet Rihanna and she might reply to you or like Stephen Fry might follow you back. Um, it's so like social media was like in its early stages. And, um, when you combine alcohol and social media. Uh, things can get, get quite interesting. So uh, after yeah, r- waking up one night after a night out and running out of toilet paper, I decided that I need to tell the world that as a student, I have a lot of problems and that uh, running out of toilet paper was the first one. So I created an account called Student Problems, uh, which just followed my life at university, uh, talking about issues that I, I faced, uh, things like how expensive cheese was, and loads of other issues that me and my friends were going through that I would note on a daily basis on Twitter.
0: And then, how did that turn into the 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 company that we spoke about that went public? What is the the gap yeah. between that toilet paper and social chain? <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a really
1: you know easy story, doesn't it? You know, you log on Twitter and it's done. Uh, no, so you're completely right. Between the point A and point B, there was obviously a lot that happened. So um, that community grew to you know 50,000 followers in the space of a couple of weeks. Um, a lot of people found it quite able to resonate with it. Uh, and it kind of became the place where people in the UK would go and follow to get content around being a student. Um, and we realized that I could run and grow more communities. So I grew um, alongside Steve, who um, at this point has started a website, which is basically like Gumtree for students. Um, but the way we planned to market that was to grow more and more social media pages. So we built um, the some of the world's biggest social media pages focused on students. To the point where you know six months later after this we had um, half a million students at our fingertips, and we could reach them straight away. So brands and other people who were looking to reach young people came to us and asked us, "We want to use you to reach young people and speak to young people online." And this kind of scale, it snowballed. You know, we owned the young people; they were engaging with our content on a daily basis, um, and we had them. Um, and brands wanted them, so we kind of married the two up, and we became the people where um helping people understand how to use social media and how um to reach and talk to young people fast forward you know many many moons that model stayed the same um but we kind of just as the market grew and social media became more important and more i guess industries appeared from social media marketing so it was influencers paid social content video all these kind of things podcasts you know sat here you know podcasting is a a back of a social media phenomenon um, we kind of continued to grow with our clients and we became the uh, one of the, the biggest UK based, definitely uh, social media agency uh, focused on working the likes of Amazon, Coca-Cola, FIFA um, on their social media content and strategies.
0: so this is something that i find so interesting about the story right because the the beginning parts there are really familiar Um, i speak for myself when i create this generalization which is there are lots of people in their 20s who go about starting a business and in the first few years it turns into maybe i don't know two or three employees in a relatively small office in a corner of some industrial estate somewhere but you guys did something entirely different right you took a business from No business to dozens and then hundreds of employees, and from no clients to working with some of the biggest brands in the world, the ones you just mentioned. And you did it at a crazy speed. So, what were the early days of social chain like, and how did you catch that wave? And then also have the the insight to know how to ride it so quickly.
1: Yeah. So, one of the key things there is timing. If you did it now, you'd be too late. So, people who are trying to replicate the model now are too late. There's people who need to play in a different sector. So, you, it's like, it's like the phrase you use there riding the wave is completely right. You know, how do you ride a wave? You have to be there. You have to be the, where they're there when the wave breaks and you have to have, you know, a little bit of skill to be able to navigate it. Um, but a lot of the growth comes from being first, being not necessarily first, but being in the right place at the right time. So, um, we managed to kind of have that competitive advantage. Uh, and that wave gave us a lot of momentum. It gave us, um, the, the ability to, to attract people um who were looking to move into a a new exciting industry um we also what was unique to us is that we'd done it before so we were the first people to come into it from an agency perspective to say well we've got millions and millions of followers on our account this is why you need to work with us social media was always going to become a thing um but who people worked with for it was always going to be the question and a lot of traditional agencies tried to do it uh, and tried to be the kind of point of contact for clients but what have you got to show? You know, you take the risks by doing things on your client's account. You've never actually ran a social media account before yourself. We had millions of followers and therefore with the obvious choice of people to work with. So, um, yeah, you know, and then you combine that with the momentum and the kind of ability to invest and think forward and the kind of fresh eyes of not being ingrained in how things have done previously and being completely, um, new to business, not let alone marketing. That you think differently and and you build something in your own vision rather than um, in the back of how you think it should be done. You've got no, you're not tarnished by anything of any previous thought. It's all new, it's all fresh, and therefore um, the limitations that might exist in other people's minds don't exist in yours.
0: So, with those limitations in the minds of others, in this uh, this area that social chain essentially invented, right? You say it was inevitable that it was going to exist, but I think that you were the first at scale agency to operate in your arena, certainly in the UK. Did you have, I guess, industry veterans, for want of a better word, in those early days who were saying, this is never going to work? This isn't the yeah. thing. This is kids yeah. and laptops. We had tons of people running numbers about how much we could sell things for. We were like, oh, a campaign could be five
1: grand. You know, this is what people are paying for it. And if we listen to those forecasts, we'd never make a penny. And they were like, no, we can't see how this works. But what they couldn't see is that the growth that's going to be in the future. You know, budgets has been pulled from other areas. Social media going to evolve. They didn't see that. So industry experts were looking at thinking, oh, Social media is going to go away. It's going to be a fad. Um, Marketing is going to be so much bigger than that. Reality was, you know, we were, we were social media was going to stay and
0: it was going to be the future. It is the the current. Was there a moment in, in that kind of early period where you won an account or you did a pitch or whatever it might be, where it it really validated it in your mind that actually this thing has legs? I, I mean, it's
1: difficult because the first two, three years of convincing people to be in social media in the first place. So that was very difficult because we had to tell people why they should be on social media. Um, Once they started to open their eyes up to why they should be doing it, it became a bit of a gold rush, you know, not to to compare it to crypto right now, but, you know, being there early and being a crypto expert might have, you know, social media is the same. You know, we were in there early, we were in there first, we were the experts. So everyone then, all the brands rushed to it. They saw the competitors come onto it. They were like, okay, how are we going to make our Instagram have more followers and -and so-and-so and competition drove a large part of it. So um it wasn't just I probably wasn't thinking there was one pitch it was just a, uh, co- a a kind of monumental shift in people's mindsets over
0: kind of a two-year period so I've had a, conf- a couple of conversations recently about something uh, and I said just before we started recording I hate the phrase I've come up with but it's the best I can think of right so uh, we're all familiar with the idea of the PayPal mafia the founders and early employees of PayPal who have gone on to do crazy things and I was having this conversation that I think social chain has something comparable that can be called the social chain mafia, right? It seems like so many of your early members of your team have gone on to take crazy jobs or launched and scaled their own businesses in the last few years. And at least from the outside looking in, the only thing that all of those individuals share in common is that they worked for and they were part of the social chain team. So, how did you manage to hire such smart people? And do you think it's that you were just very good at hiring or is it also a culture thing that, that built these people up into being the players that they are now?
1: I mean, I might do some people injustice there, but I think it's generally all culture. Even for myself, like the way I became a better person was from culture. Um, and that was through being around the rights of people, like many people having discussions. Um, you know, that entrepreneurial spark is in a lot of people but the ability to actually have the conviction and the execution against it comes from case studies. So if you see those case studies within you and that culture around you, you have the confidence to be able to do it. So um, we incubated a lot of people. We kind of gave them that expertise and that confidence to be able to do it. Um, and then they they had the case study of that. We did it, so why can't they do it? Um, attitude, which uh, then
0: kind of is a byproduct now, of what we see a lot of people launching fantastic businesses and doing really, really well. And what are some of the steps that other business owners can take to kind of, um, I guess, reflect, copy, for want of a better word, that that culture building process that you had to turn um, good players into great players? So you've got, it's, just, it's something you've got to
1: start with. You can't just create it. Uh, it comes from being fundamentally the type of people as a founder that you are. If a founder sat there thinking, I don't have it right now, then it, I think they've made a lot of mistakes and they're never going to have it. It's got to be something you breed from the beginning. It's got to be something you have as a person within you if you're insecure or if you're not listening to people's ideas or you don't promote and champion individuals now and you 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 know you're 10 years into a business you're never going to so um what you can do is you've just got to start off and it's got to be the right kind of people some people won't be able to do it some people just won't do it and they'll never will do
0: you think there's a case for young entrepreneurs people who think that they want to begin their first business now to actually go and work for a business that they admire who looks like they have a good culture so that they can i guess go through those cogs and come out a better person before they have a crack
1: obviously yes um but i would always we didn't hire people based on that opinion of them going to do their own crack we invite and we hide them on the role they were going to do at social chain um you know if they were, if if they were coming with that attitude and said, I want to learn from you from a year and then when I leave, I wouldn't have hired them. So I think this is something which came off afterwards. Um, if I was thinking about launching a business now, I would do something as a young person in an area, which is relatively new, become a master at it, and then go out there and make it happen. I wouldn't necessarily go and learn from someone who's already a master at an area, you know, you, then you end up launching something, which is kind of more of a imitation than an authentic, authentic piece. Um, and I think that's a huge problem with young men at the moment is that they just want to copy and um, they probably need to look at something through their own eyes, which could be original um, and latching yourselves onto people of talent and influence is probably not the best way to go.
0: Where do you think that phenomenon comes from um, in the business owner space? In a predominantly male sense as well, it seems that there was a period for two years where everyone and their dog would tweet as if they were Gary Vaynerchuk, right? And it was evident that these people hadn't yet pressed go live on their very first website, and yet they were talking like they were the complete package. Where do you think that phenomenon comes from, other than just a a basic need for us to feel like we've made it? And also, what is the antidote to that? Because that's something I speak about a lot. How do you? Uh, instantiate within yourself the confidence to say you know what I am nowhere near the finished package and that's fine
1: uh, I think the basic need is status status you know how you want to define it they want to be to be to be someone um, and they're, they're seeing that other people are doing it um, how do we amend it we we reward authenticity you know I don't I honestly, I hate it I genuinely hate it I have no time for people who are trying to who are big themselves up over not having done anything. I I just can't stand individuals like that. And um, I'd rather you someone had a conversation with me saying, i okay, I'm got this idea. It's not quite working out them as I'm thought about it. These are the things I've tried. This is what I'm thinking. Like, come on, like you're only doing damage to yourself. It's like come back to a male point of view about mental health. We sit there and say everything's okay. For, and Okay. It's great. Um, that's what men do about their businesses as well. And their lives and their, everything like that. I say, hey, yeah, It's great. There's no honesty. And, and, and it's conversations around okay what's not working what we could do better so um i think they just admire they, they want to be some i think it's en, a bit of envy as well
0: but they want status and they're envious of others i can't help but feel that the um if there was a binary switch that i could push today to change social media from a place where people were congratulated based on what they say they're going to do to somewhere where they were congratulated based on what they have done it would change fundamentally because suddenly then the incentive is there to put in the work, right? To go yeah. on the process that I'm in the middle of, but yeah. too many people, I don't know. It's just a funny one because yeah. you can look on Twitter and see a hundred people that you and I both know for a fact are not where they profess to be, but they still have 11 replies saying, Oh, well done, mate. Great job.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that they those, but also those that ask for help and bring people around them are obviously, I think in the long term, we're going to go further. So, um, I always say to people who feel like they're not there yet and the, who are doing the right things, just keep going um, because you will you will figure it out because you d- you know you're not perfect. Those who think they're perfect or profess to be perfect will probably not,
0: in my opinion. So a bit of a departure here, but this is something I've always wondered, not least because in my business, I'm the individual who happens to be wheeled out to do things like podcasts and record videos for us and all this stuff. And so... We spoke about you and Stephen Bartlett having worked together from day one to build social chain into what it was before you eventually stepped away, and through the necessity of having to make noise and capture attention and win clients and all of that stuff, Steve very quickly became the public face of that company
1: i think yeah. I, I just I'm in sorry I think is, there wasn't a necessity you know it's, it's a very It's a very thing to say that look that like we had to do it to keep relevant, but we didn't do it for that reason. That wasn't the reason why we kind of had to do it I think. What we're seeing now is we're seeing a byproduct of what we did, where we just talked about social because we knew that we enjoyed. You know, our whole premise is always running social media accounts and being the people who were on the finger on the pulse of social media. So we just had a passion for social media. So, like when podcasts started, it wasn't a case of, oh my God, we need to start a podcast because everyone else is in a podcast. It was like, okay, we. Steve was like, you know, his diary is here was the first podcast we did is like, I just want to start a podcast because I like social media and this is where things are going. You know, it wasn't a case of keeping up with uh, the Joneses almost.
0: Do you think that there is now a case of people are keeping up with the Joneses and they have the misconception that you need to be plowing out 12 pieces of content a week to grow? Whereas in reality, is it the case that and this is a load of questions i feel like the answer is yes it did grow because of everything um that happened behind the scenes and not a vlog and a podcast but do people have the misconception that this is a a content-based game and not a results-based game
1: um i think um i mean it's both you know it is a content and a results, but what i'm trying to say is that you know i remember looking at someone in their social media and they're like okay now we, we need to do Five tweets a day, two Facebook posts, six instagrams uh now it's like hey every single week needs to do one newsletter, one podcast, one, and you're not actually thinking, okay, fundamentally what are we trying to achieve here, and how can we achieve it um people now go to the fact that you know just like people need a newsletter, they need a podcast, and I don't necessarily think everyone needs a podcast, so um the answers come people if you think about if you think about things from first principles, the answers tend to be different than the
0: executions we're seeing right now for a lot of people. Can we compare the two points that we just spoke about then? The fact that um, people want to look to the end result and try and copy that blueprint and the fact that what people see from the outside looking into social chain was, oh, they're the guys of a vlog, so our agency needs a vlog and so on. Do you think that people are almost trying to uh, follow your footsteps but four years later than you? (laughs) There's a blueprint there
1: which you can look at and you can say this works. Uh, maybe our blueprint has left a bit of a hole because we're not there anymore. Um, so maybe it's a case of saying if we do it, it might work and we might take up that noise. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to say yes or no. Uh, I'm just going to say that I think to an
0: extent rinse and repeating does work. So for an extent. With Steve being out there though, how did how did it feel? And I, I don't mean this from an an ego point of view because clearly you were far too busy running a x hundred person business to to think about this. But uh, from the point of view that you know the the Stephen Bartlett show of content was out there, and then the two of you behind the scenes for like ninety eight percent of your time that people didn't see were growing the business. Did you ever feel that there was a disconnect between what people thought the business was and what it actually was?
1: No, I mean it was it was the best thing that ever happened. I I don't have to do anything, and the business drives inquiries, and my value, my company increases. Like, come on, you know, people have this 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 disconnect that 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 the what the reason for the company we were trying to create was personal um, personal uh, acknowledgement. You see, you know, Steve Steve launched all that for the growth of the business. I own the business. I had the growth, you know, so that was the, always the most important thing to me was watching the business grow. Um, and that was, that was what was the most important thing in the business did grow. Uh, and that was just fantastic.
0: And so with that growth in 2009, social chain went public. Um, No, 2009, 2009, 2009, I told you I'm tired. I told you I'm tired in 2019. Um, the, uh, the part the, company went public when did you realize that you were first on the path to creating a public company and how did it feel when that day eventually came
1: it felt like any other day i'll be really transparent with you
0: um
1: you know we we built it up and we we had a long period of time that every single emotion you can imagine uh experienced, experience happened so yeah it was um it was fun it was fun it was a nice nice thing to have happen uh really enjoyed it um but yeah um we, we kind of knew quite early on that the plan was to take the business business public and that was the strategy we were working towards. So yeah, kind of watched it roll roll out for a number of years.
0: Were, were there any moments on that kind of roadmap where you could see this thing on the horizon, but you were thinking, you know, maybe, maybe we won't make it, maybe we're not the right people, any of these kind of self-doubts that we all inevitably have, but I guess yours was on steroids because you've got however many hundreds of people below you and you still need to execute on that.
1: Yeah, I think I think it was we were very confident that um, that the ambition was there to to make it what we wanted it to be. So it was definitely um, definitely in our aim. So yeah, we definitely um, knew it was there, and we definitely focused towards it. There was maybe a couple of times where we were a bit frustrated about timelines, but it was never a case of it being derailed. It was always when not when not if.
0: And then, having built that business for six or so years, you left. You and Steve stepped away from Social Chain. What? played into that decision the reason I ask I'm sure there's an incredibly boring answer but as Twitter always does the day that was announced it just erupted right and everyone was speculating with oh was it this was it that um, and how did it feel walking away from a business you've built what was day one like when you I don't know woke up uh, to your alarm that morning and you thought uh, I don't run a business anymore
1: yeah I mean um, so kind of let's say the first question kind of what happened behind the scenes was you know we were just ready for it Generally just ready for it. It was time for us to say the next step in our lives. And we felt like we'd we'd achieved what we wanted to achieve. Which is very difficult for to accept because there was no reason. It was just time. Time was there. Um so yeah, that was that was kind of it. And then the next day, how did it feel? It kind of just felt like Yeah, it felt weird, honestly. You know, people that have no reason to contact you anymore. So you kind of just think, well, what what the hell? You know? Um, you had all these friends one day and suddenly now it's kind of like oh, you didn't, people didn't need people to speak to me. So you just kind of move on um, from life a little bit. Um, and you get on with it and you start kind of having a bit of peace and quiet and then you realise you missed the madness and you're like, oh my God, what am I going to do next in my life? And all kinds of emotions.
0: Did you Did you have an answer to that question in your mind before you stepped away? Did you kind of knew where no. you were going?
1: No, there was, there was no plan. There was no plan. I don't think you need a plan in life some time. So there was definitely no plan to be like, all right, we're leaving for this and that. So it was, it was just, no, it's ready to go. But, um, these, the, there's no definitive reason why it's just a case of time to go. So
0: then, <laughs> I, I don't know why I have visions of you just pottering around the house for two weeks thinking, What should I do? But what was it really like? And do you know what I mean? Those things, a little
1: bit of that, a little bit, of time <laughs> jog, a little bit of pottering around, but you know, just throwing myself into myself, having doing a lot of exercise. I was abroad, so loads of different things that I was doing, but um, yeah, there was never, yeah, it wasn't okay, yeah, well, it wasn't just walking around with the dog all the time but it was you know just taking a bit of time for
0: myself so something else that people don't typically do in their 20s is give up alcohol right and i've spoken to quite a few people on this podcast about this very topic most notably a few weeks ago i had chris williamson on he's a big proponent of sobriety um the best he uh just uh, i said this off camera but this is interesting right so he had you on at the very beginning of Modern Wisdom, like episode 32 or something. And I was just on the kind of cusp. I'd stopped drinking, but I was on the cusp of thinking like, do I start drinking again at like Radio One's big weekend that summer? Do I do it for a year? And I don't know what it was, but something about your and Chris's conversation and how you rationalized sobriety rather than making it this kind of uh, almost this abstract thing. Does that make sense? You, you yeah. pulled it back to here are the benefits. Here's what you get out of it. That conversation Literally, that conversation is what has encouraged me to go for, I've stopped counting, but it's like 1,207 days or something. It sounds very specific. It's not actually 1,207. Um, but that it is. <laughs> I'm going to check after this. It'll be very close. Um, but something I find interesting is not only that you went sober for four and a half years so far, but the fact that you've been so vocal about it and so happy to share the story behind it, right? What is your story behind going sober?
1: Yeah, I mean, God, um, how long have we got? <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, my, my, the, the reason I'm sober um, is because, uh, not because of you know, know how do I frame this? You know, um, we had a lot of, you know, social shame was a fantastic growth experience. A lot of things happened in the very early days and we got this kind of culture around celebrating a lot. There was a lot of things to celebrate. Things were very good. Things were very happy um, and really, really enjoyed making the most of that um but what kind of happened from my personal perspective is that that celebration tends to turn towards commiseration in myself um i was kind of doing a lot of um medicating i guess in terms of my problems um and i was trying to find answers at the bottom of the bottle uh, to the point where i'd have like a bottle of wine and bottle of wine and i i'd be drinking wednesdays thursdays you know, every single day of the week uh, and having big blowouts at the weekend so for me it was a case of that you know i started to hurt myself, I guess. You know, I started to make mistakes with my life. I started to um, get involved in situations which probably weren't safe. Um, one day I woke up in A&E after breaking my ankle after crawling down the, the driveway because I was so, um, so drunk. I fell over. So yeah, that, you know, I hurt myself was fine, but um, I started to hurt other people and that's kind of when for me, it was kind of, okay, I need to do something about it then. Cause I can't just be hit, I can't be hurting other people. Because um, this isn't me. This is my
0: personality. Is it the case that, um, so I I guess I took the the selective sobriety route that Chris speaks about where I just used it as like a a tool almost because I wasn't getting a lot done and I was waking up feeling a bit anxious and I was running off three days a week. Um, But, when you're in the position where you're actually looking quite introspectively at yourself to make that decision, what is that process? Was there a feeling of almost attachment? Had that become your personality and therefore did you have to let go of that personality? It became my dependency. So
1: not even like personality, I was dependent on it. So like I had a, I had a choice, either lose everything or give up call, Like I mean, I mean, everything, I mean like lose, lose social chain. Like that was that, well, was like the kind of level of things that were on the table at the time. So I had a choice, you know, you can see which one, won <laughs> over, but I, you know, it wasn't a case of a tour for me. It was a case of, I had to, I was ruining my life. I was ruining other people's lives and I had to stop drinking. Otherwise I'd have probably lost everything, probably including my own life being very transparent with you.
0: It's interesting when. When there is something to use as a contrast, right? Because then it's a binary decision. Is it A or is it B? Yeah. Uh, I can't help but feel that many people in their 20s, um, and I don't say this sat from a high horse because I just happen not to drink, but because uh, generally speaking, your life in your 20s is not that important in the sense that you have few responsibilities and few obligations. And therefore, it seems that perhaps lots of people our age lack that contrast they lack the if i don't give up a i lose b and so yeah. continue down the path of a until you're 37 and then it's a bit late to kind of turn around
1: yep yeah, exactly and that's the kind of piece where i was at is that i had purpose and something to move, move to uh, and i had to make a choice basically where whether i was gonna try and make this business thing work or whether i was trying to or whether i could enjoy spending my weekends getting drunk and living a life which i don't want to live
0: do you ever miss the, the kind of party days not even the drinking but just the idea that it, it almost seems like it is a rite of passage that you need to drink in quote marks to do a night out which obviously is nonsense and
1: no, no i don't miss that i i don't miss that I, I used to do that i did that enough you know i why what I, why what I, I don't miss anything to be honest but you know the the you do change in your life a little bit you know you, you do become a different person you do have to become a different person um that's just the the, the piece of it is you that know? you have to be you know you're 20, 23 years old and you can't go out with your mates and can't hang around with your friends so what the hell do you do um as a 23 year old that that changes you you become a bit lonelier
0: so like i say you're you're happy to talk about your views of sobriety and alcohol and yeah you're happy to pop a tweet out every now and then about it and frankly the tweets seem entirely inoffensive when i read them like i look at them and i would not say i feel indifferent but you know what i mean they don't rile me up and yet for whatever reason when you speak about sobriety on twitter Lots of random strangers seem to get very angry with you, like swearing, calling you all sorts. Hundreds of replies to tweets. Why do you think that is? Why are people so passionate about getting drunk?
1: Um, two reasons. One, it's that people don't like you questioning how much they drink; they go on the defensive. Um, people, you know, that's the biggest single thing. It's like if you ask someone, "I think you drink too much," they go ultra defensive because they're probably quite conscious of it. And the secondly is a cultural issue around how much people identify with the concept of pubs and drinking um to a lot of people it is the pub or the boozer is their life um and they defend it as much as they would defend a religion or a sports club so people um people don't like being questioned
0: that no. that was the interesting thing about the tweet i have in mind actually it wasn't it wasn't just talking about not drinking it was talking about the pub and it's like that was a trigger word for so many people to just go mad and i, I couldn't get my head around it yeah don't come after our pubs you know that our pub is the most important thing in our community what do you think when you read those replies because obviously I- i'm sure you're not fazed by them but do you have a reflection where you're thinking like is-, is this all you've got in life or do you not have anything better to do do you know what i mean how do you feel when you're reading hundreds of people calling you a prick because you mentioned a pub i mean probably like you said there it's like it's a bit sad you feel for them a little bit. Genuinely, you
1: feel from a little bit. It's like, oh my God, I do feel for these people if that's the best, the best
0: they can hope for. So something else I find interesting about you in this kind of uh, realm of paradoxes that I pulled out is the fact that despite dropping out of university at the very beginning of this story, um and evidently not needing a degree to do what you did, uh, you've now gone back to study, is it history part time at Oxford? History, yeah. So as somebody who's been on both the inside and the outside of the university system twice and somebody who's been responsible for employing hundreds of people, what can you tell me about the value of a degree?
1: So I think the values in the the education, how much people enjoy being educated. Um, If you can find passion in learning, then you'll be fine and you'll have a great time and you'll enjoy life. If you don't find passion in education, you'll stagnate if your whole self. So I've got an ambition for learning. I want to grow. I want to learn. I want to find out things. And that's where my interest comes from. Um, I think schools don't teach that well enough. Um, but if you find that in yourself, that ambition and uh, eagerness to learn, um, you can always apply it to, in different stages of your life.
0: Do you think that's maybe where the uh, the current university culture comes from? Where people are almost sedating the fact they have absolutely no interest in sports science by going out eight days a week
1: i think it's deeper than that i think we we teach people to learn for a year for an exam to pass the exam to forget about it rather than being like let's encourage people to learn and want to learn and be be people who are passionate about education um so yeah we, we teach people how to pass exams not to how to enjoy learning
0: this is a big question for somebody who isn't in charge of an education system but how would you change the education system because this is also something i speak about a lot and i was on another podcast a few weeks ago with um two guys uh, who are business teachers and they basically have a podcast where they try and speak to business owners to change the, the narrative of business education, right? But it seems, I'm sure you'll agree to an extent, that school leaves us um, entirely unprepared for life. Are there any key things that you would change if you were in charge?
1: It's a very good question.
0: Um, I don't have the answers. I'm not, I'm not
1: in charge of the education of the UK yet. Uh, maybe one day. Um, I would some things I would do is I'd get rid of all school uniforms I'd make everyone call teachers by their first names I'd introduce respect from a young age I'd try and make smaller classrooms and try and make a much more personalised education experience for everyone I'd have zero tolerance towards um, any kind of aggression or fighting or anything in school and uh, make try and find a way for the best teachers to work with the
0: slowest pupils I think one thing I'd add to that because it is literally what changed this was outside of school this was when I turned like 21 I learned the concept of like compounding interest in life and how you're one percent better each day you become 37.7 times better over a year I think that the disconnect and you touched on it the disconnect in education right now is this idea that September to September, you learn a bunch of things, you get tested on it, and then you start again. There's never this kind of extrapolation. Yeah. 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 I think that's all I'd add. Um, So here's something to finish on, right? Very few people build and exit a nine-figure business in their 20s. Very few people make the decision to stick at being sober for getting on for five years. What did you learn in the process of doing those things? What did it teach you about yourself? And if you could go back to day one again now, knowing what you know, what would you do differently?
1: Um, what it
0: teaches you about about what it teaches you that you have to learn about yourself.
1: I think it does make you have to analyze yourself, understand yourself, how you work, how you interact with people. So, um, what it made me learn about myself was that I had to learn about myself. Uh, <laughs> a bit of a cop out answer. Uh, the drinking piece was um, is is a is a superpower. It genuinely is a superpower because. I remember speaking to people who were in the best shape of their life, who were some of the fittest guys I knew, strongest guys I knew. And they said to me, I could never do what you do. And yeah, I hear that a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And you hear that enough times you think you're invincible and you've done something special. So um, that was, for me, was the sobriety was more impressive in the business, in my opinion, um, because I'd, I'd never think I could do it. Um, what would I tell myself? You know, I do believe in the butterfly effect a little bit. So, going back and messing with things wouldn't be what I do. I've got no, I generally have no regrets. So, I've got nothing where I'm like, oh, I wish I did this and the of that. I guess the thing I would always kind of emphasize is that just continue to make more mistakes. You know, the more mistakes you make, it's probably quicker you get to who you want to be. I always say to people, I'm here because I've made more mistakes than people. You know, I've made the most mistakes. And that's why I'm That's why social shame is successful. That's why. I am who I am. It's because I've failed more times than anyone.
0: Amazing. Dom, I really appreciate this. If people want to find you online, where can they head to? Yeah, go to my Instagram
1: uh, at DPJMcGregor or type in Dom McGregor on LinkedIn. They're probably the best
0: places to follow me. Great. Amazing. Thank you very much. Thank
1: you so much for having me. I hope you enjoy it.